evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Thousands of U.S. troops are moving into Eastern Europe as the Pentagon vows to defend NATO allies if war erupts. Others warn of dangers elsewhere across the globe. The president of CNN, Jeff Zucker, abruptly resigns, reportedly leaving employees stunned. Zucker says his resignation's due to failing to disclose a relationship with a close colleague. California's attorney general has labeled the Black Lives Matter organization as delinquent. That's due to an unfiled financials to the IRS. A professor questions whether pedophilia is wrong. The university he teaches at condemns his views, saying they're reviewing the incident. And House Democrats will likely pass the America Competes Act with hopes of easing inflation, boosting our competitive edge, and standing up to China. But the bill has lost some Republican support. We'll tell you why. President of CNN, Jeff Zucker, abruptly resigned today. Staff were reportedly shocked by the news. Zucker cited his failure to disclose a relationship with a colleague as the reason for his resignation. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. After nine years as the president of CNN, Jeff Zucker is stepping down. Zucker broke the news to employees Wednesday morning. In a memo, he said he failed to immediately disclose a consensual relationship with a colleague. He explained he was required to make the disclosure as part of an investigation into former anchor Chris Cuomo. As a result, Zucker said he's resigning effective immediately. Brian Stelter, host of CNN's Reliable Sources, said employees were shocked by the announcement and said Zucker has been the rock of CNN. The last few days, he has not been on the morning editorial calls. Uh, some people even noticed and wondered uh, if something was amiss. I don't think anybody uh, saw this coming this morning, an announcement like this. CNN said the colleague in the relationship with Zucker is Alison Golost, the company's chief marketing officer. Unlike Zucker, Golost won't be leaving CNN. Golost briefly served as former New York governor Andrew Cuomo's communications director in 2012, but resigned after four months to join CNN. In a Wednesday statement, Gola said that she and Zucker had been professional colleagues for over 20 years, but that their relationship changed during COVID. Gola said she regrets not disclosing the relationship at the right time. Zucker's abrupt resignation comes as CNN's parent company, Warner Media, is in the process of merging with Discovery. He's the fourth senior CNN employee to leave the network in the last two months. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. Whoopi Goldberg, longtime co-host of The View, has been suspended for two weeks from ABC. That's after she was criticized this week for declaring that the Holocaust was not about race. NTD's Chenny Wu has the details. Actress Whoopi Goldberg is facing backlash after she said on ABC's The View that the Holocaust wasn't about race, but about man's inhumanity to man. You know, and she said that it was just about one group of white people, what one group of white people did to another group of white people. Goldberg later apologized on Twitter and on air during The View. But ABC announced Tuesday that the TV host will be put on unpaid suspension for two weeks. ABC News President Kim Godwin called Goldberg's remarks wrong and hurtful. 
Godwin said in a statement, while Whoopi has apologized, I've asked her to take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. Following Goldberg's remarks, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem invited her to come and visit. Ms. Goldberg displayed in her words a fundamental lack of understanding, probably also of knowledge, about what is anti-Semitism in general and the Holocaust in particular. Nazi Germany, Hitler, persecuted, annihilated the Jews because they saw us as an inferior, dangerous race. Whether we are a race or not, that's irrelevant. They saw us as a race that was racist persecution. David Rubin, former mayor of Shiloh, Israel, says part of the problem is that the concept of race and the meaning of racism have been distorted in modern America. A big part of the population believes that you cannot be a racist unless it's racism against black people. However, Jill Savitt, CEO and president of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, said she could empathize with what Goldberg was trying to say. No one can get into Whoopi Goldberg's head except Whoopi. But I think what she's trying to say is that the Holocaust is about hatred. It's about inhumanity. It's about what human beings will do to one another that is inhumane. Um, perhaps she was also thinking that Jews aren't a race, because they're not. Jews are a religion. So the Holocaust was really perpetrated against the Jews by religious persecution. What the Nazi regime tried to do was to set up a racial hierarchy, a hierarchy of human value. ABC News says it stands in solidarity with the Jewish people. Chenny Wu, NTD News. California's attorney general has given Black Lives Matter a delinquent tax status. The Department of Justice says the group failed to file annual reports, including IRS forms for 2020. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. California's Department of Justice is going after the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which is based in Oakland, according to a letter shared by the Washington Examiner. The letter, dated January 31st, says the group is delinquent with the Registry of Charitable Trusts for missing its registration fees and IRS forms for 2020. As of now, they are prohibited from soliciting or dispersing charitable funds. If the issue isn't resolved in less than 60 days, the BLM group would lose its tax-exempt status and be treated as a taxable corporation. The letter states that the leaders are personally liable for late registration fees. BLM reported that it had an ending balance of $60 million in 2020, but it hasn't said who's in control of the funds for the past eight months, and that it had an incorrect address listed on its 2019 tax forms, the Washington Examiner reported. NTD reached out to both the state attorney general's office and BLM. David Lamb, NTD News, California. A New York professor's comments about adult child sex has triggered an uproar. The university says it's investigating his reprehensible statements. A word of caution, this story contains information some viewers may find disturbing. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. In this YouTube video by Brain in a Vat, philosophy professor Stephen Kirshner discusses taboos and criminal offenses, including pedophilia. Imagine that an adult male uh, wants to have sex with a 12-year-old girl. Imagine that she's a willing participant. A, a very standard, very widely held view that there's something deeply wrong about this, and it's wrong independent of it being criminalized. 
It's not obvious to me that is in fact wrong. Professor Kirshner also said that to him, the idea of adult child sex with one-year-olds isn't undoubtedly wrong. State University of New York Fredonia, known as SUNY, responded to their professor's comments in a statement. The views expressed by the professor are reprehensible and do not represent the values of SUNY Fredonia in any way, shape, or form. The matter is being reviewed. We contacted Kirshner, but he hasn't gotten back to us. In a video from 2020, he discusses his book on adult child sex and pedophilia with the founder of Renegade University. Um, I had good friends who said, are you crazy? Do not write that book. Man, listen, you're talking to a guy who for 25 years has been making arguments more or less in defense of adult child sex in classrooms. SUNY University knows that the professor has written about adult child sex as his work is referenced on his university profile. Kirshner also spoke about supposed benefits of adult child sex. We asked the college if Kirshner teaches about those supposed benefits in class, but we haven't heard back. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. As gun violence continues to plague New York City, another NYPD officer was shot last night. He was not in uniform and was on his way to work when two men allegedly attempted to rob him. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. We can make our city safe if we get the help that we need and deserve. Officials say the 22-year-old New York City policeman was not in uniform as he drove to work. He was stopped at a traffic light when two men approached his vehicle. One of the men tapped on his window with a gun. Department Chief Kenneth Corey explains what happened next. The officer got out of the car. One of the two males then fired several shots at the off-duty officer, striking him in the shoulder. The officer returned fire but did not strike anyone and the two males fled the scene on foot. He went on to say that other police officers heard the gunfire, rushed to the scene, and rendered aid to the off-duty officer, and they radioed a description of the suspects. Other officers saw two men who fit the description and attempted to stop them. As those officers got out of the car, the suspects fired a shot towards the officers, which struck the rear bumper on the passenger side of their unmarked car. As the mayor stated, the officers exercised great restraint and did not return fire. And I want to emphasize that. These officers are being fired at and did not shoot back. Instead, they chased the suspects on foot and apprehended the two of them a short distance away without further incident, where a firearm was also recovered. The off-duty police officer's injuries were not life-threatening, and he's in stable condition. Mayor Eric Adams plans to speak about gun violence in New York City with President Biden when Biden visits on Thursday. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. Hours after that off-duty officer was shot, thousands of police officers gathered for the NYPD's second funeral in a week. Wilbert Mora was one of two officers who were ambushed while responding to a domestic disturbance in Harlem. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Thousands of New York police officers in dress blues and white gloves filled the streets around St. Patrick's Cathedral for the funeral service of NYPD officer Wilbert Mora. Officer Mora, who was 27 years old, immigrated to the United States from the Dominican Republic when he was seven. Mora was promoted posthumously to detective by New York City Police Commissioner Kishant Sewell, who spoke at his funeral. Wilbert was the perfect candidate to join the NYPD. No one had to tell him to become a police officer. It was all he ever wanted to do. 
it was the most loved, significant, inextricable part of his life. I'm told the only close second was his PlayStation 5. Mora joined the police force in 2018 after graduating from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He was remembered for his love for the job, his gentle personality, and his heroism. His older brother, Wilson, was last to speak at the funeral. Mom showered us with love, and you absorbed it like a sponge. So as an adult, I saw your love for your friends and for people come out in ways that others can't. You were impossibly patient with me, even when I was at my worst. Mora hoped to help improve relations between the New York City Police Department and communities. He made 33 arrests during his few years on the job, while impressing fellow officers as being humble, helpful, and eager to learn. Jason Perry, NTD News. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University say pandemic lockdowns did a lot more harm than good. Their paper says lockdowns have had devastating effects on both the economy and society, including raising unemployment, reducing schooling, and contributing to domestic violence. But they found lockdowns had little to no impact in reducing deaths. The researchers performed an analysis of over 20 scientific studies and found that early lockdowns reduced overall COVID-19 mortality by two-tenths of a percent. They did find evidence that closing non-essential businesses like bars may have helped reduce the number of deaths. But their overall conclusion was that lockdowns are not an effective way of reducing mortality rates and should not be a part of pandemic policy. And President Biden is deploying thousands of U.S. troops to NATO's eastern flank. The Pentagon says it's sending a clear signal to Russia but a Republican senator is warning that it's distracting the U.S. from even bigger threats. NTD's Iris Tao has more. It's important that we send a strong signal to Mr. Putin and, frankly, to the world that NATO matters to the United States. An additional 3,000 U.S. troops are moving into Eastern Europe in the next few days. It's, uh, an attack on one is an attack on, on all. We are making it clear. Uh, that we're going to be prepared to defend our NATO allies if it comes to that. 2,000 troops based at Fort Bragg in North Carolina will be deployed to Germany and Poland. An additional 1,000 already in Germany will reposition to Romania. The Pentagon says these are not permanent moves. Moreover, these forces are not going to fight in Ukraine. The Pentagon adds that Wednesday's move does not mean the U.S. believes Putin has decided to invade Ukraine. This as the White House walks back on describing a Russian invasion as imminent. I used that once. I think others have used that once. And then we stopped using it because I think it sent in, uh, a message that we weren't intending to send, which was that we knew that President Putin had made a decision. Meanwhile, Senator Josh Hawley calls the latest troop deployment a mistake. He says it's putting more Americans in danger in Europe, while our signal threat is China. In a letter sent to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Hawley demands clarity on how Ukraine's membership in NATO serves U.S. interests. He also urges Biden to rethink basic assumptions about U.S. foreign policy that have been collapsed by the rise of China.
Senator Hawley is asking Blinken to respond to his questions by the end of February. That includes whether Blinken is concerned about the U.S. military's ability to defend Ukraine against a Russian invasion while simultaneously deterring Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific. Aris Tao, NTD News, Washington, D.C. House Democrats will soon pass a bill to boost American manufacturing, the America Competes Act. But some Republicans are pushing back, saying it would only help the Chinese Communist Party. China Task Force Chairman Michael McCall is one of many Republicans withdrawing support for the bill. But why is it losing bipartisan support in the House? NTD's Melina Weiskopf reports. House leadership is bringing to the floor the America Competes Act, and we heard from a group of House Democrats earlier who all say they're eager to see this bill passed, and it is likely to pass through the Democrat-controlled House. But it's not looking as bipartisan anymore. What was once started as a bipartisan effort in the Senate, when the Senate passed their version of it over the summer, is now drawing Republican pushback, at least from House Republican members, because they say many of the tough-on-China provisions have been stripped from the bill. That's why many of those House Republicans say they'll be voting no. It threw out all the good stuff that we put in there to help counter China from a technology competitiveness, uh, from an ability to stop cash flows into China. The House bill invests in efforts to address climate change, working with China to, quote, develop and deploy clean energy generation technologies. However, there have been complaints that the raw material used to make solar panels in China have been made with forced labor. And the bill does try to crack down on this by imposing sanctions for human rights abuses in Xinjiang. So you're not confident that those sanctions on the Xinjiang region will be enforced? I think they're, they're creating a collision course between funding that will go to the very province where they commit genocide. That's where they create the green energy. And they're going to get around uh, those provisions, maybe moving it to other uh, places, but still using Uyghur Muslim population for forced labor. But Republicans support some parts of the bill, like the CHIPS Act and investments in American innovation and technology. This is where both parties are on the same page. That's going to relieve some of the supply chain pressures that we have, directly confront inflation, and ensure that American manufacturing can be competitive, that we can restore it, uh, and that we can continue to lead in technology and innovation. And it's got to go to the president. It matters to the country, every single provision in it. Now, the House version of the bill is likely to change because even after it passes the House, lawmakers from the Senate and the House will have to come together and reconcile differences between the two versions. Now, the question is, will that changed a final version of the bill be something that Republicans see as solid enough to support in the Senate and garner enough Republican support to get it to Biden's desk? Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Coming up, the Washington football team has a new nickname, the reason they're no longer called the Redskins, and the other options that got rejected. And the upcoming Winter Olympic Games, the events to be played, and who the favorites are. We'll look into that and more here on NTD News. The Washington NFL football team has spent two years deciding on a new team name. Today, they're revealing the final pick. What do fans have to say about it? 
The National Football League's Washington, D.C. football team has finally made the name change, a move that comes as no surprise to fans. I feel like that was a big move for football, for the NFL. I think it was a good move for the NFL um, to, you know, be a more inclusive, you know, organization. Um, so I'm glad that they made that decision. Like many American professional and college sports teams, the club once had a name derived from indigenous peoples, the Redskins, but it had long been denounced as a racial slur against Native Americans. The club held out on changing its name until mid-2020, when one of their naming rights sponsors urged the NFL team to rebrand. Since then, the team has been known as Washington Football Team, with the official name and logo left undetermined. I thought it was pretty bold, you know, to change it to the football team. And I know a lot of people were, like, thinking it was kind of a goofy name. During the rebranding, the names of Wolves or Red Wolves topped the list of name suggestions. But the name Commanders was officially settled on, ruling out both options. Most fans seem to be fine with it. Can't say that really gets me up and going, but it's better than Redskins. Uh, it's got a, a nice feel to it. Uh, people get used to it and just deal with it. I feel like when you decide to, you want a strong name to go with a name like Commanders, like just just very in your face strong. So I don't know if I necessarily love the name, but, but yeah, Commander is better than Redskins. Let's just put it that way. The Washington Redskins were formerly known as the Boston Braves, founded in 1932. They changed the name to the Redskins the following year and moved to Washington, D.C. in 1937. The Super Bowl is fast approaching and preparations are in full swing at Los Angeles SoFi Stadium. Workers were busy Tuesday preparing the field for a face-off between the Los Angeles Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals in a couple of weeks. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. As workers painted Super Bowl 56 logos and yard lines on the field, Katie Keaton, the NFL Senior Director of Events, explained why there's so much excitement around this year's game. You know, we've got a full stadium, you know, we've got a new stadium, we've got a big city, we've got the home team, you know, a host team, um, a home team, sorry, in the game. You know, you add on all of those elements, all of the halftime show talent. It will be the Rams' second Super Bowl appearance in four seasons. Before this year, the Bengals had not won a playoff game since 1991. They're one of 12 teams that have never won a Super Bowl, but they have been revived by second-year quarterback Joe Burrow. And the, this season also has just been amazing, right? The games this weekend were amazing. So, you know, the football is going to be great, and we've got some amazing stars in the game, and, you know, really good stories around that. So we're just really excited. Fans attending the game will be required to wear a mask and show proof of vaccination or a recent negative test. But there will be no capacity restrictions at the 70,000-seat venue in Inglewood. The NFL and Los Angeles County health officials said they would host a vaccination clinic and give out free tests at the Los Angeles Convention Center on February 5th and 6th and February 10th through the 12th. We're working really closely with the LA County Health Department to put in place the protocols for the game. You know, it'll be uh, vaccination required or a negative test required for access into the game, and then we will require masks in the stadium. So, you know, we've been we've hosted now millions of fans throughout the season uh, safely and we feel confident we can do that on Super Bowl Sunday as well. Super Bowl 56 is set for Sunday, February 13th. This year's halftime show will feature Mary J. Blige, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, and Eminem. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The opening ceremonies for the Winter Olympics are just two days away. 
And with 15 events on the schedule, NTD's Dave Martin has the lowdown on who the favorites are in the first of this three-part preview. With speeds reaching up to 95 miles an hour, alpine skiing is one of the most popular events to watch at the Winter Games. It also makes it one of the most demanding on the athletes. America's own Michaela Schifrin, already with two golds on her resume, will look to add to her Olympic haul. She's a favorite in the slalom, giant slalom, and the alpine combined events. On the men's side, Francis Matthew Fair and fellow countryman Alexei Pantaro are their favorites to win now that two-time gold medal champion Marcel Herscher has retired. Curling was added to the Olympic schedule in 1998, and Canada has been the most successful since with 11 medals, including six golds. Sweden, though, is right behind them, and both their men's team, featuring two-time Olympic medalist Nicholas Adin, and women's team are considered the favorites this time around. The American men's team, however, are the reigning Olympic champions. Luge is one of the three ice sliding Olympic events along with the skeleton and bobsleigh, but it's the fastest of the three with speeds averaging 75 to 90 miles an hour. Germany's Felix Locke has already won three Olympic golds in this event. He's a six-time world champion and is considered a heavy favorite. Meanwhile, his fellow countrywoman Natalie Geisenberger is the most decorated female loser in Olympic history and is a favorite to bring home her third straight gold. Emma Klinich won the women's ski jumping event at the 2021 World Championships and the 22-year-old Slovenian is a favorite to win gold in Beijing. On the men's side, the competition is wide open. Germany's Andy Villinger is the reigning champion and one of the favorites, but no one has successfully defended his title since the event was introduced in 1964. Finally, in ice hockey, the NHL's decision to not send their players completely changes the field. The NHL is considered the highest competition in the world, and because Canadian and American players dominate their rosters, the two countries' teams are severely weakened. Russia, meanwhile, has far fewer NHL players while boasting what's commonly accepted as the second-best league in the world, the Continental Hockey League, and should be the favorites. On the women's side, five of the six gold medal games all-time have come down to Canada versus the United States, and this time it's expected to be no different. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. February 2nd marks Groundhog Day, and today is the largest annual weather prediction ceremony in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. NTD's Chenny Wu gives us a look. Punxsutawney Phil, the seer of seers, the prognosticator of all prognosticators, was gently lifted from his burrow at 7.25 a.m. Legend has it, if Punxsutawney Phil the groundhog sees his shadow, we can expect cold temperatures to continue. Although groundhogs in captivity can usually live up to 14 years on average, the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club insists that there has only been one Phil since the first prediction in 1886, meaning he is at least 136 years old. The club says Phil takes a sip of an elixir of life every summer at the groundhog picnic and it magically gives him seven more years of life. So what did Phil predict this year? Well, he emerged from his burrow Wednesday to see his shadow. That means six more weeks of winter. But the National Centers for Environmental Information doesn't give Phil a passing grade for accuracy, saying over the past 10 years, he's only been right about 40% of the time. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Coming up, smash and grab thefts continue to damage businesses throughout California. San Francisco police are making more and more arrests as they investigate the crime blitz.
And a city in California has started a project to scare off the huge population of crows roosting in the city at night. The new solution? Lasers. An area environmental scientist weighs in on the effects. That and more here on NTD News. California continues to battle with smash-and-grab theft throughout the state. San Francisco police have now arrested a suspect believed to be connected to the brazen Union Square retail theft back in November. San Francisco police said they arrested a woman believed to be connected to the robberies that took place on November 19, 2021 at a number of Union Square luxury shops. Police say they encountered Mal Janae Williams, an alleged Union Square thief, while responding to a call on Thursday around 4 o'clock a.m. The call was about an unspecified disturbance on the 1300 block of Mission Street. During their investigation, police found out Williams was on probation and had three warrants for her arrest, one of which was for allegedly taking part in the Union Square looting. Police say Williams has been booked into jail on a number of charges, including burglary, vandalism, and possession of a loaded gun. SFPD said in a statement Monday that investigations are ongoing and they anticipate making additional arrests related to the November looting. Williams is among nearly a dozen people arrested so far in connection with smash-and-grab crimes in Union Square, but several suspects have yet to be caught. During the pandemic, the population of crows boomed in Northern California. The overpopulation resulted in various forms of pollution, from noise to feces. One city is applying a solution from New York City to keep the birds away. Lasers. Crows suddenly bolted out of the sky as they swoop into downtown Sunnyvale, California. They litter city sidewalks, cars, and benches with their feathers and feces. A local environmental professor said the lasers are effective, but open up new questions. So the idea of using lasers to scare the crows away or to scare the ravens and crows away, um, shining lasers at them, what do they experience? And we don't actually know that. The staff demonstrated the effect on crows roosting in trees. So I usually just wait until they sit down on the tree, then I can use a laser on them. Some opponents said that the lasers may cause other unintended side effects, like interfering with airplanes. As you can see, they're all just kind of flying by, so we're just staying away from any aircraft and airplanes that are driving by, especially we got departments right here. So The problem is that Ravens and crows also are predators for other species. They're also predators for songbirds and for less human-oriented species. What if we push the ravens out of our very highly impacted areas in the middle of cities and they end up moving to a place where there's an endangered bird that they're eating their eggs? O'Malley said the best solution is to treat the city like its own ecosystem. Working with lasers, it, it might help push back the problem for now, but I don't see it as a long-term solution. We need to manage our cities like ecosystems. That's what they are. We need to have a diversity of different habitats within a city. So in order to bring back the hawks, the peregrines that can take care of the, the ravens, um, we need to have a variety of perches and a variety of trees and shrubs and 
um, flowering plants for the insects. Sunnyvale will continue the pilot program for another week in the downtown area between 5 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. Coming up, the Beijing Winter Olympics are just around the corner. Chinese officials are scanning for those who disagree with the regime's policies and who might speak out during the games. And a bill heading to the French Parliament will address complicity of French hospitals in forced organ harvesting from prisoners of conscience in China. That and more after the break. With the 2022 Olympics opening ceremony just days away, maintaining social stability is at the top of Beijing's to-do list. But that term doesn't mean it's on the lookout for potential safety threats. Instead, Chinese officials are scanning for those who disagree with the regime's policies and who might speak out during the games. To keep the silence, officials are reportedly clamping down on social media while dissidents are getting locked up or put under house arrest. Here's more. The Beijing Winter Olympics begin in just three days, and the Chinese Communist Party has spared no effort in making sure the event runs smoothly. That includes keeping social media on a tight leash and monitoring users' personal posts, aiming to prevent any content that doesn't align with Beijing's policy. Senior Chinese media professional Gao Yu explains, saying, this storm of WeChat account closures is very powerful and unprecedented. He's referring to Chinese social messaging app WeChat and its recent wave of account bans. Gao also described how certain features, like the ability to access group chats, have been permanently disabled for his account since December. Other Chinese influencers have reported account restrictions, too. The CCP is afraid that these people will destroy its political image of being stable and united and wants to show off. This is definitely not normal. It violates the basic bottom line of human civilization, but it is regarded as normal by the real freak, the Communist Party. Inside China, numbers of human rights defenders have shrunk in recent years amid rising suppression. The Winter Olympics has given the regime a renewed reason and opportunity to step it up even further. Reports say several human rights activists have disappeared or been arrested in the past few weeks alone. Among them is author Gao Feixiong. His wife recently died of cancer while living in the U.S. The Chinese regime barred Guo from leaving China to care for her and saying goodbye in person. Even those who aren't activists but who dare to speak up against human rights violations have been targeted. Several guards are at my door and now we can't get out. A van is parked at the door. People inside the van are watching me and my mother 24 hours a day. Dong Guanping is a former Chinese police officer now based in Canada. He says Beijing is using the Winter Olympics to boost its propaganda and brainwash the Chinese people. The Communist Party is promoting the idea that the party is great among the people and that it has made many achievements. The Winter Olympics is the most important propaganda venue. Last month, the Communist Party sentenced 11 people to jail. All of them practiced Falun Gong, a spiritual meditation system based on the principles of truthfulness, compassion and forbearance. They were jailed for sending photos capturing China's pandemic situation to New York-based newspaper The Epoch Times. One of them is painter Xu Na from Beijing. She received an eight-year sentence. The U.S. State Department condemned the verdict days later. 
and called on Beijing to immediately end its depraved abuse and mistreatment of Falun Gong practitioners. A bill to be debated this Friday in France's lower house of parliament points to a lack of transparency between French and Chinese hospitals. Several politicians have concerns that medical professionals in France could be complicit in forced organ harvesting from prisoners of conscience in China. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has this report. In a bill to be debated by France's lower house of parliament this week, French MPs are questioning the lack of transparency in China's lucrative organ harvesting trade. Independent reports show the Chinese Communist Party has been harvesting organs of political prisoners without consent for about 30 years. The victims are Christians, Uyghurs and Falun Gong practitioners. Research quoted in the bill says China conducts an estimated 60,000 to 100,000 organ transplants per year. These organs are sold to rich Chinese people, but also foreigners who travel to China for organ transplants. This practice has been denounced in an EU resolution in 2012 calling for the immediate release of prisoners of conscience in China. But it did not stop the Chinese regime from continuing to harvest organs. And one issue also remains to be addressed, the complicity of French surgeons and hospitals who help their Chinese counterparts. Head of Research and Technology Development at Salpetriere Hospital, Alexis Genin, said in a 2018 Senate hearing that there is direct cooperation between French and Chinese surgeons. Our French organ transplant system is formidable and works great. But our best surgeons have taught and trained for the past 20 years, the Chinese surgeons. What they know about transplantation, they learned it from us. The bill is supported with evidence from French hospitals' programs helping Chinese transplantation systems. In 2019, a French delegation including a top health French hospital director and the president of the National Academy of Surgery officially opened a French Chinese hospital in Shanghai. Each year, 10 cardiologists from the Asia Health Hospitals in Wuhan are trained by the Bordeaux University Hospital at a cost of approximately 90,000 euros each. This involves the cooperation of French universities, pharmaceuticals, public hospitals and surgeons. Investigative journalist Ethan Gutman presented evidence to the National Assembly on his work, interviewing Uyghurs and former prisoners of conscience. He also says pharmaceutical companies play a role. Is the issue of Chinese, uh, rather French companies, uh, trying to sell products that are directly related to organ harvesting in China and uh, one of your pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, uh, certainly is selling uh, immunosuppressive drugs to Chinese people who are carrying around a Falun Gong or a Uyghur organ in their bodies. Gutman said pharmaceutical drugs are a means to preserve health conditions of people who have received an organ. However, these drugs companies played a major role with the fast development of forced organ harvesting in China, beginning from the 90s. If the bill presented in the National Assembly is implemented, it might force French hospitals and companies to show evidence that the organs for transplant are ethically sourced. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. British Home Secretary Priti Patel has hit back at criticism from French President Emmanuel Macron who had accused the UK of being responsible for all migrant deaths in the English Channel. Patel says Macron and his government are fully aware of the UK's efforts in tackling migrant problems. NTD's Eddie Aitken has this more. 
Home Secretary Priti Patel said French President Emmanuel Macron's comments about Britain's attempts to tackle migrant crossings are just wrong. She told MPs on the Commons Home Affairs Committee the entire French government, including both the Interior Minister and President Macron, are fully aware of the UK government's efforts. First, first response is, first and foremost, we speak to our French counterparts all the time on illegal migration. Macron blamed the drowning of migrants on the UK's lack of a legal immigration route. He reportedly told a French newspaper that the UK economy relies on low-paid illegal migrant labour and that the UK manages economic immigration through hypocrisy. The French government are fully briefed on the work that the British government is doing, the National Anti-Borders Bill, the investments that we put in France in terms of protection, um, you know, working with their um, surveillance teams and also working um, with intelligence cells and policing. The Home Secretary said that it was not right to say none of the government's efforts to limit illegal immigrants is working, but she admitted that the number of failed asylum seekers was tiny. According to the PNU's agency, more than 1,300 people crossed the English Channel to the UK aboard small boats in January, over six times the number last January. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. The Russian leader in his first direct public comments on the Ukraine crisis in over a month claimed the Western allies are using the situation to contain Russia. He said their refusal to meet Russia's security demands violates an earlier pact on security for all nations. This report comes from NTD's Eddie Aitken. Russian President Vladimir Putin gave his first remarks on his country's standoff with the West over Ukraine in nearly six weeks. I want to mention that we are closely studying the written answers from the U.S. and NATO, which we received on January 26. But we already can see that fundamental Russian concerns were ignored. Putin spoke at a news conference with a visiting Prime Minister of Hungary. He was responding to letters that NATO and the U.S. sent to Moscow in late January. In them, they formally rejected Russian demands to bar Ukraine from ever joining NATO and to pull out NATO forces from Eastern Europe. Putin says this violates their obligations on the integrity of security for all nations. It's not just the issue of allowing somebody to choose a way to ensure their security freely. This is just one part of the well-known formula of indivisibility of security. The other essential part says that it is not allowed to ensure one's security at the expense of other countries. The Kremlin says these obligations are spelled out in a 1999 agreement, which was signed, among others, by the U.S. and the U.K. It considers this to be at the heart of the current crisis. Western officials have, for weeks now, asserted that Moscow is plotting an invasion, something Russia has denied. Putin said that the U.S. is using the Ukraine situation to contain Russia. But I believe that the U.S., for example, does not care much about Ukraine's safety, though they probably give it a thought in the background. But their main task is to contain Russia's development. That is the problem. In this context, Ukraine is just a tool to reach this goal. It can be reached by various means, by drawing us into a military conflict and making their European allies impose against us those tough sanctions the U.S. talks about today. 
Putin said he hopes dialogue will continue. We should find a way to ensure the security of all participants in this process, Ukraine, the European countries, Russia. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And an update on the Canadian truckers protesting vaccine mandates. Negotiation talks are reportedly underway in Alberta. Meanwhile, in the nation's capital, the government isn't showing any signs of giving in. And the police chief says there is likely no policing solution to the demonstration. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. Wednesday marks the fifth day of the truckers' protest in Canada's capital against vaccine mandates. And Ottawa's police chief says they're losing confidence that police alone can handle the situation. And it's in that context that I make the statement there is likely no policing solution to this. But in combination with other efforts, there may be other opportunities to substantially reduce, if not um, end, this demonstration. Police Chief Peter Slawley didn't rule out help from the military when asked by a reporter. When you say other than police, do you mean, do you need politics? Do you need military? I'm very, I'm not, I don't understand the answer. I understand it's not only police, but then what are those other options that are not police options that we might need? I think you just listed most of them right there. The city's mayor, Jim Watson, added to the chief's comments, saying this whole occupation can end tomorrow if they show some empathy, as they say they are. He said residents' nerves are frayed and that they haven't been able to sleep for five nights in a row due to the honking. But the truckers have made it clear that they won't leave until the mandates are lifted. Meanwhile, truckers blockading the U.S.-Canada border crossing reportedly met with rural ministers of Alberta's Legislative Assembly Wednesday afternoon. This is to discuss the demands put forward by the truckers. Since Sunday, they've been blockading the Alberta-Montana Highway to protest vaccine mandates. According to on-the-ground reporting from Rebel News, the truckers opened one lane of traffic to meet a condition set forth by the Assembly members. If they do not meet our requests, that border is shot again immediately. Amen. Amen. But we're the trucker's lawyer, Chad Williamson, recorded a statement discussing the new developments. This is extremely positive. And this is the, this is the reason uh, why we bring parties together uh, to try to resolve things peacefully. As of 5 p.m. Eastern Time, there was no update on the outcome of the negotiation. Grace Coulter, NTD News. Just ahead, many Australians are leaving the dairy farming industry each year, but one father and son are bucking national trends. One of the world's top ski resorts in Austria has a rich history. It was at this resort that ski pioneers developed revolutionary techniques, among them the precursor to the parallel turn. Find out more after this short break. Alberg in Western Austria is one of the world's top ski resorts. It's known as the cradle of alpine skiing and is home to many ski pioneers. The resort's Alpine Training Center and a 121-year-old 20, ski club offer a glimpse of its rich history. Let's take a look. 
The Alberg Ski Resort in Austria boasts 88 lifts and cable cars and 190 miles of marked ski runs. It spreads over five main towns and villages. The Alberg's legendary status is rooted in its history, with local ski pioneers, one of whom revolutionized skiing by developing the Stem Christi technique. It's also known as the Alberg technique. It was the precursor to the parallel turn. This technique spread worldwide, and it is now taught at the Ski Austria Academy. Yes, of course, our house is an alpine skiing center. All the training courses that have something to do with alpine skiing take place here in St. Christoph, from the ski instructors to the trainers. This house has a very great tradition and history, perhaps starting with the first head, Professor Krockenhauser, who actually created the education system here. In the 1950s, this professor popularized what's known as the Vidon. It involves holding the legs very narrow and rapidly making a series of short parallel turns. This technique is revolutionary as the upper body rotates in the opposite direction of the turn. Right across from the skiing school is the 600-year-old Alberg Hospice Hotel. It was once the site of a hospice for weather-stricken hikers. It was in that simple mountain refuge in 1901 that six friends founded the ski club Alberg. I don't think that these people, these six founding members, would have thought that over 120 years later, this ski club Alberg, which is the most successful ski club in the world and which has members from over 60 countries with over 8,000 members, still exists. Many things have changed since then, but what has remained the same is a ski club Alberg emblem. The ski club has been very successful. Its members have won 91 medals at the FIS Ski World Championships and the Olympic Games. It's just so truly the center of all this ski development. I mean, we don't invent skiing. That was done by someone else. But many developments and evolutions of skiing have originated here. People have used skiing for thousands of years to get around. It only became a sport in the mid-1800s. Hundreds are leaving the dairy farming industry each year in Australia, but a father and son are bucking national trends. They're buying dairy farms to enjoy what they say is a more balanced lifestyle. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. More than 75% of Australia's dairy farms have closed their gates in the past 40 years, according to Dairy Australia. But at 72, Stan Johnson has become a dairy farmer. It's a good lifestyle because I can keep doing it and I'm hoping I can keep doing something on this farm for another 10 to 15 years. When he was dairy farming 35 years ago, there were almost 22,000 dairies across the country. Now there are fewer than 5,000. Hundreds are still leaving the industry each year, but not Johnston. We're not going to get rich but it's a very good in industry to be in. His son, Wade Johnston, also recently began dairy farming to create a better work-life balance for his family. Day in, day out, and it's hard work. However, I want to do something where I'm next to or near my family nearly all the time. I'm just focused on my little, little tiny farm here, my little world, and I'm just trying to make everything as productive as I can and as uh, clean and healthy as I can. The industry has faced decades of challenges, including drought and unsustainable supermarket prices. But Dairy Australia says a growing appreciation for local produce is reviving dairy farming. There are opportunities where individual producers, individual companies are really capitalising on that support and really 
um, uh, working towards supplying an Australian consumer who really wants to see the Australian dairy industry succeed. And the dairy farming renaissance is providing some with record-breaking profits. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A unique salad eating contest in California brought in some unusual contestants giant rabbits. But instead of taking home the gold, the lettuce-loving bunnies met with defeat instead. Let's take a look. Two, one! A giant lettuce-loving rabbit named Honey Bunny has met its match. Nicknamed Mega, the oversized critter lost a salad-eating contest to a human woman. Salad franchise Chopstop organized the competition in Glendale, California. I remember seeing these ridiculous pictures on the internet of people holding these massive rabbits. I did a little research and I found out there was uh, a local guy who actually breeds those. They're called Flemish Giants rabbits. So I contacted him and it was a match made in heaven. Honey Bunny, the giant rabbit, virtually froze in front of the lettuce tray, barely eating anything at all. The organizers then allowed the Honey Team to bring in a backup contestant, Precious. But that rabbit also failed to eat a single leaf. Their keeper said he wasn't surprised at the outcome. Rabbits are not scarfers. They're not like dogs, just scarf it down quickly. They're nibblers. They nibble all day, all night. So they eat decent amounts, but over a period of time. The winner, Reina Huang, has been competing in eating contests for four years. But the girl says she doesn't eat salad at all outside of competitions. It, it was more of like a challenge to myself. Um, when I do contests and challenges, usually I don't really pay attention too much to what competitors do. I think the best for me is just to see how the best of what I can do. To win the competition, Huang managed to put away three and a half pounds of chopped salad within 10 minutes. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.